Sometimes you can, um, you can tell that catastrophe is certain, can't you? I, I looked at this photo the other week, not that one, but that one. Sometimes you can tell that catastrophe is certain, can't you? It's a kind of peaceful enough scene, isn't it? But the likely outcome, if he stays up there very long, <laughs> is entirely predictable, isn't it? Disaster is going to strike. Or, or, or look at this one. I found this one. Similar, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's not going to end well, is it? You can see, look at that, it's not going to end well, either for the car or for the guy that's just there underneath. It's not going to end well. Or, or what about this one? That's not going to end well either, is it? There's a looming catastrophe going on there, isn't it? We can see it. Um, or here's one. Look. We, we, know that, we know that picture, don't we? We know that scene, kind of lovely scene of Kate Winslet falling in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. But we know where this famous film scene is heading, don't we? It's entirely predictable for us, isn't it? Because they're on board the Titanic, aren't they? And disaster is about to strike. Um, well, if you've, been, uh, if you've been with us as we've gone through this, this series in Genesis, we've been looking at the life of Abraham uh, together, you, you'll know that the, the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that we've, we've just had read to us there was actually an equally certain catastrophe, wasn't it? We've, we've seen this coming, haven't we? We saw it last time in chapter 18, uh, of course, as the Lord disclosed to Abraham, what he was going to do, verse 17 of chapter 18. But, but actually, we've known it before then as well, from back in chapter 13, verse 10, when the cities were first introduced to us. In, in fact, they were, they were introduced with the unpromising phrase, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So we've, we've been told that this is coming, haven't we? And, and we've also been told why this is coming uh, as well. Chapter 13, verse 13 tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And, and so from, you know, from that point onwards, it's not been a question of if catastrophe will strike them, but when. And, and that's the point that we've reached this morning in chapter 19. This is the point when the cornice gives way, uh, or when the, the ramp collapses, or when the man on the branch falls, or when the iceberg hits. It, this chapter is the end of the road for the city of Sodom. And, and of course, when the, when the catastrophe that we know is coming inevitably strikes, well, new questions arise, don't they? Questions like, can anyone be saved? And, and if so, how can they be saved? And, and how many can be saved? And, and the answer to those questions is actually of vital importance for us today because, as we saw last week, or last time, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is intended to be an example to us, to, to Abraham and actually to all of God's people who come after him of how God deals with sin. So, so passages like uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 6, or Jude 7 uh, in, in the New Testament refer to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, saying that they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In other words, the New Testament teaches us that this Old Testament event is recorded for us as an example of the eternal judgment that is still to come. So this is a, a warning of danger for, for us. 
And we can't read a passage like this, can we, without reacting in some way to it. It's it's a deeply shocking chapter, isn't it? But the question, I think, is how will we react to it? Uh, We could, of course, ignore it. You know, we could just not think about it at all. Uh, or, Or we could, of course, reject it. We could just dismiss it as a joke, like, you know, like Lot's son-in-laws do in, in verse 14. Or we might think it best to investigate it and let it raise questions in our minds to consider. But whatever we decide to do with it, it ought to be clear enough that it's here in the Bible as a warning to us. And I'd urge us to take that warning very seriously indeed. So let's start having a look at it. And we're going to do that in verses 1 to 11, where we see the exposure of sin. So uh, we saw in chapter 18, God has visited Abraham in the form of these these three visitors, one of whom is referred to as the Lord, as as Yahweh. And and the other two uh, we see here are referred to as angels or messengers. And the purpose of their visit to Abraham in chapter 18 was to reassure Abraham and Sarah that his promise to build a a nation and bring blessing to the world through them was still on track. And and that by this time next year, uh, they would have a son. But the visit was also for God to disclose to Abraham what he was intending to do with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, So if you quickly glance at at chapter 18, uh, you'll see uh, verse 20, you'll see that God has heard of the grave sin of those cities. It's come to him as an outcry and he is going to go down and see whether things really are as bad as he's heard. Verse 21 uh, of chapter 18. Uh, And so the two men that are with him, the two messengers or angels, are sent to Sodom to go and have a look. Verse 22. And while the angels are heading for Sodom, uh, we saw Abraham pleading with God not to punish the righteous with the wicked. Do you remember that? Even if there's only ten righteous people in the whole city. Lord, don't punish the righteous with the wicked. And and so now we're picking up the story, chapter 19, verse 1, as these two uh, angelic messengers uh, arrive in Sodom in the evening. And the question is, are there ten righteous people in the city? What, What will the angels find As they go there. Well, have a look at verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we'll spend the night in the town square. So, so as the, the angels uh, arrive in the city, Lot is to be found sitting at the city gate. Now that's an important detail because the city gate was where men of importance in the city would gather. Um, w- which seems to mean that the, uh, the Lot, who we, we read about back in chapter 13, verse 13, was living close to Sodom. And then in chapter 14, verse 12, was dwelling in Sodom has apparently now integrated himself fully into the life of the city. He's in a place of prominence in the city. But but you'll notice he's still very kind to the visitors, isn't he? He offers them hospitality, just like like Abraham had had done in in verse 2. But when the men politely declined the hospitality and said that they'd spend the night in the town square, Lot became frightened for them. He pressed them strongly, verse 3, just to stay with him. 
which they did, and, and they made them a great feast of food, as, as Abraham had done uh, for, for the, uh, the visitors as well. But Lot's anxiety for them there, I think it's just an early clue, isn't it, as to what kind of a city Sodom is. It's not necessarily a safe place for them to spend the night. And as the story progresses, we can see why. Uh, look, verse, uh, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And, and those words know them there in verse 5, they're a euphemism for sex. Okay, bring them out so that we can have sex with them is what they're saying. And, and notice who is doing this. It's not just a kind of, you know, a street gang from the rough part of the city or something. It's all the men of the city to the last man, from the youngest of them to the oldest. And they are screaming for Lot to bring out his guests, effectively so that they can gang rape them. That's what this is about. That's a massively depraved scene, isn't it? It's a scene of sexual perversion and it's a scene of sexual violence which seems to serve, as far as God is concerned, as an indicator of the spiritual state of the city and as justification for the coming judgment of it. These these visiting angels, if you like, represented Sodom's last hope of a reprieve from God's judgment. But actually, instead of them pleading with the visitors for that reprieve, actually, they, they sought to rape them. Instead, it's, it's a shocking scene, isn't it? But, you know, it's worth, it's worth noticing here that although the sins of Sodom here are clearly sexual sins, in fact, Jude 7 calls them both sexual immorality and also unnatural desire. So I'm afraid we can't simply say that it, the sexual violence component here and not also the homosexual component is what God is judging. I'm afraid it's both. But friends, the sin of Sodom is not merely sexual. Uh, Here's how the prophet Ezekiel describes uh, uh, Sodom. He says this in Ezekiel 16, 49 uh, 49 and 50. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned they did not help the poor and needy they were haughty and did detestable things before me in other words friends there's a whole load of different sins mentioned there isn't there including arrogance and a lack of concern for the poor as well as the detestable things which is probably a reference to the 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 sexual sin there So yes, God does condemn Sodom here for its sexual sins because the Bible confirms from the beginning to the end that sex is God's good gift which he's given to be used exclusively within the covenant union of a marriage between a man and a woman. And so to take it outside of that context and actually decide to use it in the way that we think fit instead of the way that God sees fit it is actually not only to, to degrade and, and to devalue God's gift, but it's also an act of rebellion against the God who gives the gift. But friends, if we're tempted to you know, kind of feel a bit smug at this point and say, well, you know, at least I'm not like those dreadful people of Sodom, 
well, then we need to see that it's not only sexual sin here that makes us like them. But that according to Ezekiel, it's, it's also being arrogant, being overfed and unconcerned for the poor. Actually, according to Moses in Deuteronomy 29, uh, God's people of old were to be overthrown like Sodom and Gomorrah because they were unfaithful to the covenant. And Jesus warns his disciples in, in Matthew 10, 14 and 15 that those rejecting his gospel message were like Sodom and Gomorrah. Did, did you see? There's no room for finger pointing here. <laughs> because the big crime over which we face God's judgment is not the crime of sexual adultery. It's the crime of our spiritual adultery. It's our unfaithfulness to God that leaves us facing his judgment. And so I, I think, friends, these, these verses ought to leave us all humbled, shouldn't they? Because we too, in, in our unfaithfulness to Jesus, are in no better a position than the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. If we are to be spared the final judgment of God to which this one points, well, it won't be because we're any better. And friends, that ought to humble all of us. Because sexual sin is just one area of sin among many. And none of us have got sin licked, have we? We're all battling it ourselves in so many areas. And, and so, yes, the, the, the Bible is right. It, it, it is right for us uh, that, that we don't simply follow the culture and redefine what the Bible calls sin. But rather call our brothers and sisters in Christ to turn away from living sinfully and live God's way instead because God will judge sin. But friends, we will want to do that not with finger pointing, but with love and with compassion as one sinful person to another. So that the passage doesn't really paint the city of Sodom in a very good light, does it? Uh, but as the passage continues, look, it doesn't really portray Lot in a very good light either. Did, did you notice that? Which is striking because the New Testament, uh, 2 Peter 2 uh, and verse 7, uh, calls Lot righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sexual conduct of the wicked. So Lot does seem to have some genuine faith in God to, to, to some small degree. He, he certainly shows an element of bravery in, in verse 6 by stepping outside the door, by pleading with the angry mob not to act so wickedly. So he's, he's evidently not so immersed in the depravity of the city that he doesn't see their behavior for the wickedness that it is. But despite that, he is hopelessly compromised, isn't he? He even seeks to avoid one sin by offering them another in the form of his, his two daughters. That's just a vile thing to do, isn't it? But the mob are not interested in, in this anyway. They want the men. And so they tell Lot to stand back. Verse 9, who made you the judge, they say. And they threaten to deal worse with him than with his two guests. So much so, verse 10, that his guests, the angels, have to drag him back into the house and shut the door and then strike the mob outside with blindness to stop them from tearing the place down. It's an appalling scene, isn't it? The, the, the Lord had said, ch chapter 18, verse 21, that he would see for himself the wickedness of the city before he came in judgment upon it. Well, now he's come. He's come in the form of these angels here. And, and Sodom's sin has been well and truly exposed, hasn't it? Well and truly exposed. 
But look, not only do we see the exposure of sin, but notice as well, in verses 12 to 14, we see the prediction of judgment. Because if you remember chapter 18, Abraham had pleaded with God not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked, even if there were only 10 righteous people in the whole city. So now, notice what the angels say to Lot in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. In other words, There aren't ten righteous people in Sodom. There's only Lot. And so he is told to get his family and get out of the city because God is going to destroy it for its wickedness. And and remember, friends, that we're meant to see this as a picture of all humanity under the universal judgment of God for their sin. Jude 7, again, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Or, or 2 Peter 2.6, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So, so the message that we're supposed to get here is that God judges sin. It's a certainty. He will do it. He must do it as a just and a, and a holy God. Abraham asked back in chapter 18, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Well, yes, he will. And that is exactly what he's doing here. He's judging sin as he must do as a righteous God. Now, Lot understands this well enough. And and so he tries to round up his family. Get out of this place, he says, verse 14, because the Lord's about to destroy it. But his sons thought he was joking, verse 14. And you know, uh, friends, that could easily be our response this morning, couldn't it? Um, we could laugh at the prospect of, of God's judgment. Oh, it's just another of those uh, prophets of doom from the Old Testament, you know, the kind of ancient world's equivalent of those, those guys you see at Speaker's Corner, you know, with their sandwich board strapped to their back saying the end is nigh or whatever it is. You know, they're just cranks. But do you know that the, the most graphic predictions of God's judgment, they don't come from men at Speaker's Corner with, with uh, sandwich boards. They don't even come from Old Testament prophets. They come from Jesus himself, the, the most loving man who ever lived, the one who said, love your enemies, the one who said, pray for those who persecute you. The one who went to the cross with your sin and mine on his shoulders is, is also the one who warned in, in Matthew 13, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. <laughs> He's the one who cautioned in, in Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be, Jesus says, on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And and I don't know about you, friends, but those verses in Luke remind me of that that scene in, in 
Titanic, not that scene in Titanic, but the one that comes just after it. Do you, do you remember? Where all the guests are partying, they're having a good time in the ballroom, while below the waterline, the ship was on an inevitable course for total destruction. Do you, you see the point? Even as they're dancing and drinking and having a great time, the fate of the ship is already sealed, even though no one at that stage is taking it seriously. And friends, it it is a a deeply uncomfortable thing to hear about God's judgment, isn't it? It's a pretty uncomfortable thing to have to speak about as well. But you know, the Bible is clear that judgment is predicted. And that events like the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah are here in the Bible as a warning to us that a righteous God must and will punish sin. And it's a warning that God gives us because he loves us. And he longs for us to escape it. So we need some good news, don't we? (laughs) We need some good news. Here it is, look. We've seen the exposure of sin. We've seen the prediction of judgment. Let's now see the reality of rescue in verses 15 to 22. Uh, So look, Lot's been warned once, verse 12. Now he's warned again in the morning, verse 15, to leave straight away or be swept away. in in the punishment of the city. But notice those words, look at the beginning of verse 16. He lingered. He lingered such that the angels actually had to seize him and his wife and his daughters by the hand and lead them out of the city. Something that is described as the Lord being merciful to him. And that's exactly right, isn't it? We've seen how how Lot has moved from living close to Sodom in chapter 13 to living in Sodom in chapter 14 to now having a place of prominence in Sodom in chapter 19. Despite being called a righteous man, someone who trusted God, he's been shown to be a horribly compromised man. A man so compromised that he's not only prepared to give his own daughters over to be abused, which is just an unthinkable thing but also reluctant to leave behind the life he's become caught up in, in the city, such that he and his family have to be almost forced out in order for God to rescue them. And and, and notice that he's not only slow to leave, but he's quick to haggle as well. Did you notice that whiny speech of his in in verses 18 to to 20. Uh, and Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I, I can't escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Did you see? He's trying to strike a deal isn't he? Like, like, like a compromise. It's like, okay, Lord, you can boot me out of Sodom so that I can escape your judgment, but just so long as I only have to go as far as this little Sodom down the road. That's incredible, isn't it? Not, not even the imminent warning of judgment is enough to convince him to turn his back on his compromised life. He, he just wants to exchange the big Sodom for, for a little one up the road. Instead, he's, he's slow to leave behind his life of compromise and he's quick to renegotiate in order to hang on to as much of it as he can. And friends, this, this should make it abundantly clear to us that, that if anyone makes it out of Sodom alive, it's going to be purely, as verse 16 puts it, 
because God actually grabs hold of people and leads them to freedom in his mercy. And, and that's what we see here, isn't it? We see that rescue is God's doing. Lot, Lot might have been a, a righteous man in, in the sense that he, like, like Abraham, believed in God and, and God credited it to him as righteousness. But that doesn't mean he wasn't still a horribly compromised man. And friends, do you know, that is such great news for you and me, isn't it? Because I, I don't know about you, but I find it amazingly easy to be just like Lot. To be compromised. To be slow to deal with the sin in my life. And quick to try and hang on to certain bits of it that I've just become attached to. And so I'm so glad that my rescue, just like Lot's, is on the basis of God's mercy and not my achievement. What great news that is. To be able to see here the reality of rescue. And that it's based purely on the mercy of God. And and that's especially because what we now see is not just the inevitability of judgment, but the implementing of judgment. Here's the execution of punishment. Look in verses 23 to 29. Have a look at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So so God has given time for Lot's rescue before judgment is poured out. And we're not left guessing where it came from. Verse 24, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And we're not left guessing about the scale of it either. Verse 25, and he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So this is total destruction and it's from God and no one is left alive. No one who remained in the city survived and no one who wished they'd remained in the city survived like Lot's wife look in verse 26 who was told not to look back in in longing she'd been mercifully offered rescue but her looking back in longing for her old life that that she had just showed up that actually she wanted Sodom more than she wanted rescue and and so her petrified body became a, a gruesome monument warning others not to forfeit the rescue that God offers you know, I wonder what it must have been like for Abraham uh, to survey that scene of destruction the, the following morning in verses 27 and 28. How different that fertile valley and those bustling cities must look now as, as Abraham looks down on them from the, the hilltop, you know, where he ate with the Lord. It's just a scene of utter devastation, isn't it? But did you notice verse 29? As, as God's promised judgment is poured out, so we're told that it wasn't executed on everyone, but that Lot was saved because God remembered Abraham. And that's really, you know, I, I think perhaps the most important verse in the whole chapter. Lot is saved because God remembered Abraham. As it, it might have struck you, it certainly struck me as, as I read this chapter, that Lot is hardly any better than the rest of Sodom, is he? He's, he's been so morally compromised from his life there 
that he's, he was prepared to give his daughters away to satisfy an empty crowd, uh, an angry crowd, and, and that when rescue was offered, he didn't really want it and needed to be taken by the hand and led out of danger. So why was he saved? Well, the writer wants us to know it's because God remembered Abraham. God had ple- Abraham had pleaded with God back in chapter 18 not to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. And so the judge of all the earth has done what is right. But despite Lot being righteous, despite his, his faith in God causing him to be righteous in God's sight, he's still horribly compromised. So even righteous Lot is not rescued on the basis of his own merits. But he's rescued by God's mercy in response to Abraham's pleading. And friends, we need to see here that the only hope for Lot, the only basis for his rescue, is the mercy of God. If if Lot is going to escape God's judgment, God needs to act in mercy. If it was just left to Lot to somehow rescue himself, well, so caught up in sin is he that he wouldn't even want to leave it behind. And friends, that's not just the case for sinners then, but it's the case for sinners now as well, isn't it? As we've seen, this story is given to us as a picture of a final judgment that's still to come. And so we need to see from these verses, not just the warning that is there, but the solution as well. That sinful people facing the judgment of a righteous God need mercy. And that mercy, of course, uh, that, that, that's seen here, if you like, in, in embryonic form. Well, that is, that is fleshed out in all its glorious detail as the unfolding plan of God finds its fulfillment at the cross, the cross of Christ, because it's here at the cross where we see God's righteous anger at sin placed not on us, but on Jesus in our place. So that by trusting in him, We can be forgiven for our sin. We can be declared righteous and so spared the righteous judgment of God. Not because we are good, because we're as compromised and conflicted as Lot was, but simply because Christ's death in our place means that our sin has been paid for by him such that we can be shown mercy and not justice. Friends, as as we see in in stark terms here, the righteous judgment of a just God is, is just a glorious thing, isn't it? But see too here the reality of rescue through the mercy of God. You know, there's a postscript, isn't there, to this sad episode in, in verses 30 to 38. Um, did, did Lot's experience of, of judgment and And rescue mean that he was now living a righteous life? Hardly seems so, actually, does it? You you can take Lot and his daughters out of Sodom, but it seems to be a lot harder to take Sodom out of them. Uh, After God's judgment on Sodom, they they flee to the hills in in fear rather than live in Zoar, which I I guess is probably a mini version of Sodom. So so maybe they fear that God will judge that city too. But, But with Lot and his daughters living in a cave in the hills by themselves, the... The daughter's biological clocks are ticking. They want children. That's understandable enough, isn't it? 
But look at the depraved steps that they take in order to achieve what they want. Verse 32, come they say, let's make our father drink wine and we'll lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Do you see, so, so consumed were they with their desire for children that they would go to any lengths to get what they wanted. That was more important to them than obeying God. And of course the lengths they went to to achieve that are shocking to us, aren't they? But you know, friends, are we really so different? Do do you ever find yourself thinking, I I must have a wife or a husband or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a career or or a certain standard of living or whatever it might be if my life is going to be meaningful? And do you ever find yourself being so consumed with that personal thing that you must have that it will cause you to disobey God in order to get it? You know, that's when something becomes an idol, isn't it? That when you choose... Uh, when you have to choose between it and obeying God, you choose it. And you've got a sad tale at the end of this chapter of, of a man whose idols were ones of wealth and comfort that attracted him to Sodom in the first place, and a man who ends his story in a cave, in, in poverty, in, in drunken ignorance, at the mercy of his daughters. And you've got daughters too whose desire to have children has become such an idol to them that they've pursued it at any cost. And, and the result... It is that by and large, with one or two exceptions, their descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites, in verses 37 to 38, they remain outside of God's promises of land and people and and blessing. Friends, can I ask us this morning, as, as we've looked at the events of this chapter and chapter 18 as well, who have you identified with? Who who are you most like? Are you most like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Are you comfortably set in your sin and oblivious to the ticking time bomb of God's judgment? Are you like passengers on the Titanic, having a great time whilst being unaware that you're ultimately uh, uh, um, unaware that the ship's demise, if you like, is, is inevitable? Are you like Lot's wife? You've, you've heard that judgment is coming but you're ultimately unwilling to give up the world for God? Or are you like Lot? Are you a believer in God, yet you're compromised and compromising because there's something you're living for more than him? Or are you more like Abraham? There's quite a contrast between the other characters in this story and what we've seen of Abraham, isn't there, in the book of Genesis? Who, despite failing at certain points, as we all do, has chosen to trust himself to God and God's promises, to live in the world by faith in what God says. And friends, in contrast to the others, it's Abraham who ends up as the seed through whom God will bring rescue and blessing to the whole world. Who do you most identify with? Let's pray together, shall we? Let's pray and ask God to help us reflect on his word and to respond in trust and obedience. Father, we thank you for, we do thank you for these sobering chapters. Chapters that you give to us, that our sin may be exposed, that the inevitability of your judgment would be clearly seen. But then, that the reality of rescue would be clearly presented so that we may throw ourselves on your mercy alone to save us.
Father, would you please help us to do that this morning, to turn away from being comfortable in our sin or from being unwilling to give up the world or from being compromised in our living for you. Please turn us from that. Uh, And please help us instead to simply trust ourselves to the promises of your word as they are fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his powerful and precious name. Amen.